This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. The following is a presentation of the SpeedSport Podcast Network. Mike Wallace doesn't have all that much driving experience. For the last three or four years, he's put in his dues in this business. Mike Wallace comes down to the line. He'll pick up the win. It's fast car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. The battles for the lead. Mike Wallace gets by Jason Leffler. Mike Wallace comes off turn number four. A great move in that corner. He comes to the line and will win. From grassroots to the top of the racing world. Hear the stories of NASCAR's biggest names and how they made it all the way. Who was Tony Stewart before he was Tony Stewart? I could barely make enough money to pay attention, let alone to try to survive. So, I mean, I was doing it all myself. Presented by Crosley. Amplify your style. Here are your hosts, Mike Wallace and Jeff Kent. Welcome to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace, part of the Speed Sport Podcast Network, presented by Crosley. My name is Jeff Kent. Strap yourselves in, pull those belts tight, and we'll take you on a journey from short tracks across America to super speedways and everything in between. Today's guest, major success at all three top levels of NASCAR, Xfinity Truck Series and Cup, 2002 NASCAR Bush Series champion, 2000 NASCAR Truck Series champion, in the Cup Series, 510 races over 15 years, 19 wins, Mike, 174 top 10s and 13 poles. He drove for Jack Roush in the Cup Series from 2003 until 2016, and they had it going on. Say hi to Greg Biffle. Greg, say hi to Mike Wallace. Good morning. How are you? We are doing great, Greg. Thanks for joining us. Man, Jeff Kent, 19 Cup wins. Yeah. That, that's that's an amazing career by that's, itself. Uh, they had it going on when, when, when Greg drove for jack roush man they were they were a top team now well as everybody calls him the biff but the biff you, you you've had a great career but uh as we're talking here the thing our fans like to hear they want to know who greg biffle was before he was greg biffle the famous greg biffle <laughs> you know i remember hearing first time i ever heard your name i think was from uh, my old buddy benny parsons back at winter heat or whatever back in the day but Take us way back in time and tell us a little bit about Greg Biffle. Well, as you know, it gets difficult to remember those things uh, as as we get a little bit uh, older. Of course, I'm not saying I'm old, but uh, no, that was concrete walls we used to hit, Greg, before say, the soft walls. See, the youngsters yeah. have those soft walls. Yeah. That's right. That's the difference. That's right. <laughs> well, well, let, you, let you know, me lead up, you. You grew up somewhere out in the West Coast. Tell us about growing up. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up in the Northwest, so certainly not the uh, NASCAR capital by any means in the in the in the uh, U.S. So I grew up 
out there. My dad grew up in, my parents grew up in Southern California. So my dad was a huge car guy. So was my mom. You know, she tells me about the split window Corvette they had when they were young and, and all those cool things. So my dad hung out Southern California with all those, all those car guys, Mickey Thompson and, and some others um, did a little bit of drag racing. So when we moved to the Northwest and I was born in, in Portland, Oregon, my dad became buddies with this machine shop guy right down the street from his small steel fabrication uh, outfit. So he ended up, AC Nutter, he ended up having oval track cars. So, you know, we lived out on uh, eight acres and I had motorcycles from the time I was five years old. So I was riding motorcycles. I begged my dad. I remember like it was yesterday. I begged my dad for a go-kart. If it wasn't 10 times a week, I don't know what it was because I just wanted to drive. I don't know why instinctively, if it had wheels, burnt gas, it didn't matter if it was a forklift, the tractor driving his truck around the, the steel yard or at home on the property. I just loved anything that burnt gas and had wheels on it. it I was all about it. And I was all about, you know, engines and, and working on stuff. My, they had a flat bottom boat with a 427 Ford factory dual quad side oiler. I remember sitting on the, the side of the boat, helping my dad adjust the valves. I probably wasn't helping, uh, dropping, losing bolts and nuts and, and everything else. But anyway, I remember those things growing up. And, uh, you know, as it, as it was, my dad and I built a street stock car. One night we went over to Portland Speedway hung on the fence, watched, you know, watch what happened. And I, you know, I was like 16 then. And I said, absolutely. Um, you know, do I want to uh, build a street stock car? So there we were, my dad and I get this 1974 Ford Torino. Yeah. That was, that was a hot rod. First car. And we built a street <laughs> stock car and, that, and the rest is, is kind of history. So, so it basically started, you've always had a, a desire for cars, motorcycles, anything that, you, as you said, burnt gas. So what do you think prompted that night you guys went over and hung on the side of the fence and looked at each other and said, let's build a, uh, you know, a 74 Torino, Torino and be a street stock racer? What, what prompted that particular move, do you think? Well, I, I, my, my father's passed away now, but if you sat there and asked him, I've heard him tell the story a couple times and I don't know if it was him wanting to, you know, have a project and work on, you know, cars and do that. But I think part of it was to get me from quit raising how on the street and, you know, getting in trouble and, and, you know, we're out, got speeding tickets and all kinds of different stuff when I'm 16, you know, I'm going like a bat out of hell. Right. <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, get to the racetrack and do, do something productive. And my dad loved it. You know, my dad enjoyed, you know, fabricating and working on the cars and gave him something to do. But it was really, my dad was good friends with AC and my dad wanted to go to the racetrack and he said, come on, let's go on Friday night. And, you know, I don't really remember that night that well, but uh, I remember going to the racetrack and the minute I saw it, Mike, the minute I saw it, I was like, I got to do this. I was like, I have to. I, I, I just was beside myself. You know, it's kind of cool. I'm sitting here. I'm visualizing this, Greg, and I kind of, and maybe you weren't looking up at mom or dad, but maybe eye level, but like, come on, I want to do this. Is that kind of how it happened then? It was. It absolutely was. You know, and I was an athletic guy. I mean, I, I, I played you know, t-ball, baseball, I played basketball, I wrestled in high school. And, you know, I, I was competitive, and I loved sports, and I loved cars. And so when I watched this, it's man and machine. And that's what it is. And I motocross raced a little bit. Um, and that just wasn't my thing. I love motorcycles, I still ride today. But, you know, it wasn't um, just, just it didn't click with me about, uh, you know, it seemed a little bit dangerous, especially when you're landing on guys and, 
and everything else. So, um, Landing on guys. We, like that. we were just talking about <laughs> yeah. that before the show, actually. <laughs> yeah. But literally the next morning, the next morning, of course, there's no Internet, right? It's not like you could – I pulled out my iPhone and started Googling finding a car. The next morning, I'm, like, down at the gas station. I get a coffee and a newspaper, and I'm looking for cars for sale. Because, you know, I'm trying to, my dad's a Ford guy, and so I'm trying to figure out what the heck are we going to build. I didn't know anything about it. And so, you know, um, we, we picked that, you know, just picked that car. We got it for 300 bucks, and it ran and drove. It was a perfect car, and off we went. Well, that sounds great. As you built that, now you you found the car in the newspaper, found your buddies, found it, whatever. You have three hundred bucks for a car, and so what do you do? Just go pick it up and take it back to the shop and start cutting on it, or tell me how that one took went down best yeah. you can remember. Yeah, absolutely. So we took it back to the shop, shop, started cutting on it, taking the interior out of it, building a roll cage. So my parents had a pipe bender not a tubing bender and those that are into the fabricating you know pipe is measured on the inside and an actual tubing is measured on the outside so we had inch and five eight shoes which would bend uh, or, or inch and a half which would bend roughly an inch and three quarter tubing so we we cobbled up a roll cage probably better than than some people because we had some fabricating uh, background but we put a roll cage in it, did all the, the necessary stuff, and, and off to the racetrack we went. And, you know, I dabbled with that for a while. And, and the story's kind of funny because I went from that and had moderate success at that. And AC had what's called, you know, back then a Northwest Tour car, which is sort of like, I guess, Mike, like an ASA car. It was a, you know, it was a 2,900-pound all-fiberglass tube chassis, like left-hander chassis. Okay. So my dad gets this bright idea that, and him and AC have been cooking this up, we're going to go to Phoenix, Arizona, and run the Copper World Classic. Oh, well, you guys and jumped got, in deep, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got very little... I've got very little street stock experience. Hadn't been on anything bigger than a quarter mile paved. And my dad rents the track and we take this uh, Northwest tour car to Portland Speedway and practice it and then load all of our stuff up and drive to Phoenix, Arizona because we're going to race this Copper World Classic. And I'm pitted next to A.J. Foyt. Huh. <laughs> Is racing the Copper World Classic. And for anybody and, that doesn't well, know, Greg, I don't mean to interrupt, but the Copper World Classic had been a famous race that run at Phoenix International Raceway. And it was the, correct me if I'm wrong here, it was like the winter race. It was like in January or something. And every yep. hero that was ever a hero ran the Copper World Classic. Yeah. Just yeah, to knock yeah. some rust off. So AJ Foyt's parked next to you. Now, now you That's got me excited. Intimidating, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, we pull in in a suburban with an open trailer, and I mean, we have got absolutely no idea what we're doing. We actually enlisted one guy to help us, and in um, in that Portland, Oregon area, was uh, um, Jimmy and Chuck Bound. The Bounds were from uh, that area. Wholesale truck parts was one of their sponsors and Herschel McGriff was, was out in that area anyway. So there was a few people around. We got this one guy to come help us and, you know, get us in the right direction. Cause we didn't know about scaling the car and, and all these things. Anyway, we had, so like I said, we had moderate success. We made the race, which was kind of impressive uh, for, for us coming out of the Northwest and not really knowing what we're doing. And then we ran some Northwest Tour races, ran fairly decent, had some, you know, miscellaneous trouble, engine overheating and other things, learning learning curve for getting in it. So then we decided we can't afford that. But I've learned how to scale a car. I've learned caster, camber, front suspension, how to assemble a car top to bottom. I've, I've My fabricating skills has gone from you know, building tube steel columns and doing all this for the my parents' steel business to 
you know, learning how to TIG weld and build all this lightweight and, and, and important stuff. And I understood the, the sport for what I thought was really good at that point. So I went back and built a street stock car because my passion was, was super deep now. So I built a 70, uh, for Nova, which is more like what was in these, these street stock classes all night long. I built this thing, you know, took the subframe off, hot tanked it, put it all back together, all the molding off of it in the, in the, um, putty, got the thing as light as I could get it, show up at the racetrack on, on a Friday night. And people didn't really know who, who I was. I show up at the racetrack three quarters of the way through the season, qualify third, win the trophy dash. And everybody's like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> you know, I mean, like people just don't, that doesn't happen at a local racetrack that people have been racing for years, you know? And actually what happened, Mike, was a lot of people came over and looked at the car and to talk to me and look at the car and they're like, who built this? And I was like, I did. And what came out of that was all these people wanted me to build them cars <laughs> and do fabricating work and roll cages and everything else. And so at that particular time, I think I was 19 years old. At that particular time, I started my business because I just, I was an entrepreneur and I loved what I was doing. And I said, look, if I can make a living building race cars and doing what I love, I'm all about it. And in the next three or four years, I went from doing street stocks to limited sportsmen to, to full late model cars in in about a three four year period so that's really how i got started in all of it gotcha hold that thought jeff's going to bring us back in a second and we're going to take it from there we're going back through the years with greg biffle you're listening to fast car to nascar with mike wallace on the speed sport podcast network presented by crosley and nascar digital media all right, y'all, welcome back to the Crosley Speed Sports Studios. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. Today's guest, Greg Biffle. Once again, here's Mike Wallace. Well, Greg, we were talking about how your business established. You, you went to the racetrack with your own race car and impressed everybody so much, they started wanting you to build cars for them. So give us a little background on the car. I mean, did you just start what we'll call a chassis business or a fabrication business? What'd you do there? So what I did, Mike, was I, I was I was working out of uh, working at a place in Portland. I lived in Vancouver, Washington, across the river. So I worked at this place called Amaron Pipe Products, and we worked six ten hours days. And so I didn't have time to really do anything. Saved all my money, which is unusual for for a guy that's that young. But when when I decided I got tired of doing that, and I didn't have enough time to work on my race cars and do what I wanted to do before I started my business that was ended up being my seed money so when i got my street stock car done went to the racetrack and all these people wanted me to build a car then i decided i was going to do that so i bought uh what they call a dealership from coleman machine which sold you know race car parts and all that so i started selling parts out in the northwest bought a cube van, sold parts to the racetrack on Friday night, started building chassis and doing roll cage work, worked my way into, you know, selling late model cars and building late model cars. And so I knew some background from that Northwest tour days, which was ended up being two or three years prior to that. And I, uh, so the way I got back in the seat was I was building my own late model car to get ready to go racing. And at that particular moment, uh, uh, an owner and a driver kind of had a spat and a falling out. And they asked me to come in and drive the car. And this was, again, was about halfway through the season. So I said, sure, I'll do that. So I went back and started racing or started racing late model cars really for the first time. And <clears throat> that season, we ended up winning two or three times. Went to Tri-Cities at the end of the year, which is about four hours away, and won a race there. And so then we decided we're going to race for the championship the following year. And that year we had a ton of success. And I worked on building my car throughout that, that time, and then I took my car to Tucson Winter Heat at the end of that season. So I won the championship at Portland Speedway and Tri-Cities 
which are four hours apart. And then when the winter came, I took my car, went to Tucson, which was a televised event during the winter, which is a three race series, one in November, one in December, one in January. And Benny Parsons and Bob Jenkins were the TV commentators. And I ended up winning two of the three races and winning the short three race series. And that's where I became friends with Benny Parsons. And I came down and did it again the following year. And shortly after that, well, about mid, mid the next year, I got a call from a gentleman said his name was Jeff Smith, which we all know now was the president of Roush Racing at that particular time and said, Jack Roush is interested in you coming and racing the truck series next year. I want to know if you're interested. And of course we don't get, you know, we don't, we know what those phone calls are like. <laughs> They're far and few between. So, so what and age so, were you, Greg, right there? Because I'm kind of counting your success. Like what age was it when Jeff Smith called you? So that, uh, I believe that that was 97. So, um, I was, or yeah, so I was 20, like 20, uh, six okay. years old or okay. so 27. I think I was 27 because my birthday's at the end of the year. So I was 27 at that point. Um, you know, so I raced, you know, the tour car and then built that business for three or four years. And then, uh, you know, then got the call from Roush and, in mid, like September 97, I think we were at a Labor Day weekend race up in the Northwest when I actually, well, I got the call prior to that Labor Day weekend race is the way I remember it. Well, um, that, that's an exciting time because I remember small world this is, Benny Parsons was my son Matt's grandparent or a godparent, gotcha. saying that wrong, so... I remember hearing about this guy by the name of Greg Biffle that set the world on fire at Tucson, you know, and that was pretty cool. So yeah, it was a, it was a lot of fun, and, and you know, I became friends with Benny. Benny was a guy, I mean, just bigger than life, right? I mean, I've got stories about Benny for for the, forever, but one thing I remember about about Benny Parsons is he met he met my uh, girlfriend's mother one time at a racetrack. And fast forward seven, six years later, she happens to be at another race. And he walks up and I said, hey, Benny, this is, I don't know if you remember. He goes, oh, hi, Sarah. How are you? Oh, really? He met her one time. <laughs> and he did that to my friend as well, Mike. He met Mike one time, three years later. I, I have zero memory. This guy's got a photographic memory. Wow. Benny Parson was an amazing guy. I mean, he knew everyone. He loved to talk. I mean, he, he just uh, was loved life. Uh, uh, just a great guy. Yeah, without a doubt, I have to agree with you on that and triple and double that. So Benny Parson exposes you to Roush Racing, basically. Or Roush Racing gets exposed to Greg Biffle through BP. Uh, Jeff Smith calls you, talks to you about, hey, a truck ride. What, what did you think when you first got that truck ride or truck call? Were, were you expecting the call or did it come out of the clear blue? Out of the blue. So I'm working in the shop, Roger and I. My parts manager, parts guy, I have about five people, four people working for me. And, you know, we're struggling, working seven days a week, 15 hours a day. Um, and my parts guy says, Greg, get out a call. It's uh, Jeff Smith. And typically, people don't give their first and last name. And so I thought it was strange. We were getting ready to go to lunch, and Roger and I go to lunch every day together because that's our time to have our board meetings, so to speak. You know, Roger and I kind of ran the shop and ran the racing together. And we talk about what car, what builds we've got coming, what parts are on order. It's sort of our time because we don't have time in the shop. we got to stay hustling. we got to be working. And in that 30 minutes, we got to sit down in front of each other every day was our was our business plan, so to speak. And I remember it was right before lunch. I go in the office, take the call. We'd actually wash our hands, got ready to leave. I look back out in the shop. Roger's gone back to work. 
And like 30 minutes later, 40 minutes later, he's, I look out my window in my office and he's his arms up in the air. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, let's go. And I write on the uh, piece of paper, Jack Roush, and I hold it up. And I'm like, you know, he's shaking his head and throwing his arms. But <laughs> anyway, it was a, it was a call out of the blue. I had no idea. I had no contact with Jack Roush or with uh, Betty Parsons. I had no idea he was going to call. And Mike, they called me and asked me to fax them a resume or a picture of myself. And they hired me on the spot. Unbelievable. No, Unbelievable. no resume. Yeah. Well, he asked if I had a resume, excuse me. And I said, no, I really don't. Um, and he says, well, fax me a picture of yourself. And, you know, it was like, okay. And, and literally they hired me. No test, no resume, no anything. Hired me on Jack's, or on, excuse me, Benny Parsons' word. All I can say on that, Jeff Kent, is wow. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. No, I don't have a resume. I'm sorry. Yeah, what a compliment that is. So... <laughs> Now, I have to ask, as you get off the phone and Roger's standing there and you guys still haven't went to lunch yet, right? What do you do first to him? What do you say to him? I said, man, that was that was Jeff Smith, the president of Roush, and they want me to race the uh, Craftsman Truck Series next year. And Roger's like, you know, he kind of got it at that point because that's our goal, right? We were trying to figure out how to go Winston West racing. Cause that was our net. That's the natural next step in the, in the progression was, was a Winston West car. And you know, that that's where we, you skip that whole part to. of it then is what you're saying. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Yes. Yes, we did. We skipped that. We skipped, um, you skipped you know, everything. Skipped you just want to be the star. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, after you talked to to Jeff Smith on that given day, what is the next step in your process there? Do you uh, do you then f fly to the Carolinas? Do you not do nothing for a while, or do you start? So ab absolutely, Mike. We I um, so first of all they faxed the contract, and you know I uh, of course I used there's no email back then really, so I used my mom's fax machine. So I had to drive to my mom's shop, which is not very far away all the time when I got a fax because I couldn't afford a fax machine and you needed a special fax line. So they faxed the contract. It's all these pages that I'm, I'm sitting there. My parents were actually in the office and I said, you know what? I said, it really doesn't matter what this contract says. I said, I'm signing it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it doesn't matter. So I, uh, I, I kind of thumbed through it, read it over, signed it, sent it back. And then I flew, actually, if you remember, Mike, the uh, truck team and Jack live in Michigan. Mm -hmm. So at that particular time, the trucks were in Michigan. And so I flew to um, Detroit, Michigan, went to the race shop, met with Jeff. And then we actually flew on Jack's 421, Jack's small airplane, from Michigan to Chicago it was me, Jack, Jeff Smith, and I believe his daughter, Stephanie, and maybe someone else. We flew over and met with the sponsor, W.W. Granger. And I had a few interviews with the sponsor. They had some interviews with Jack or whatever. And basically, my job depended on whether they were going to accept me as the driver for their race team. And so that was a big deal for me. And they ultimately ended up successful. They said, yes, we're going to hire this rookie kid to drive, you know, in the truck series. And, and that was it. I went back home and they actually had a test in Bakersfield, California. Um, and I came and participated in that test with uh, Joe Rutman. And I'm trying to think of who else. I believe Mike Bliss potentially was driving a Joe Rutman. We're, we're racing the trucks for, for Roush at that particular time. 
And the te- that was just an open test? You guys were just there testing, or were you kind of like vying for a position? I mean, you've already got a sponsor now. Is, is that what I'm understanding? Yeah, so they were starting a third team, and those were the two current teams they had. And they just wanted to try and get me some seat time in, you know, a bigger, heavier car than, than the late model car I was racing. And so uh, it was an open test day, to my knowledge, at that particular uh, uh, racetrack. So we, we went, I went down there, flew down there, and did that, and, um, did and, that test with them. Okay, at that time, now what's going on with your business? Is it, have you come back and said, guys, I don't know what I'm going to do? I don't, or are you just like carrying on like, an, like it's just still the business day? Well, I knew that I was going to end up leaving at that point. After I had went back, the sponsor said yes. I came back home. So now I'm scrambling to try and, you know how a small business is. We've all struggled our whole life. It's hard to make money on, on building race cars and, and doing that. And, you know, you're living on the next deposit for a car. Guy walks in, gives you $5,000, you're building a car. And, I mean, I was booked out probably, I don't know, probably six months on building building cars, just trying to build these cars, these late model cars and other stuff as fast as we can. The late model car was the, was the bigger deal for us because that, that took a fairly long time to build one of those cars from the ground up. Okay, hold it right there. Keep us in suspense for a minute. (laughs) Jeff's got to take us and bring us back. We're going to to work for Jack Roush. We're driving trucks, and we're talking to Greg Biffle. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, presented by Crosley and NASCAR Digital Media. Welcome back. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network. Today's guest, Greg Biffle. And once again, high atop the pit box, Inside the Crosley Speed Sports Studios, I give you Mike Wallace. All right, Greg, you got suspense built. You have now, you, you met with Jack Roush. You flew down to WW Granger. They hired you. They've agreed that you're going to be their man, a rookie driver. You go back to the Northwest. You walk in the shop. You probably got your idea what you're going to say, but you got deposits on race cars. Take us from there. It was, it was we've got to wrap this stuff up and get this stuff built as fast as, as we can. And I was trying to figure out how to transition the entire business. What am I going to do? And, you know, they offered Roger spot as well. Cause they said, bring his right hand man. I mean, absolutely. And it's funny because Roger got cold feet about a month before, before we left. And it, it actually worked out probably for the better in the beginning because Roger stayed back. One of our longtime sponsors, Iron Tech Welding Industrial Supply out there, kind of took the business, so to speak, under his under his umbrella. They sort of took over the business, if you will. And Roger went and, you know, kept fabricating cars and sort of building stuff and working for other guys. So that that transition worked fairly well. And so I wrapped everything up and moved to moved to detroit in like december january got ready for the beginning of the season got an apartment and here we go i'm going racing you know um full steam ahead uh, 1998 was my first year full time behind the wheel oh, outstanding just to give credit where credit's due roger is what's roger's last name that because it... roger olchi roger olchi okay you, you, the, and, you, there always seems to be somebody that's kind of critical in somebody's career or a buddy or something that kind of like was his guy as he as he was making his career work. It was. And Roger was Roger was my guy. Roger's a few years younger than me. He came to work for me, was my first employee. We've done about everything under the sun together. He was my crew chief. He was, uh, you know, uh, best friend. And so the story goes – when I, when I finally went, I mean, we stayed close. So I did the trucks and did Xfinity, then moved to North Carolina in 2000, uh, or excuse me, 2001. I ran Xfinity one and two. So my first year of cup was 2003. That's the year that Roger moved back to the East coast, moved to North Carolina and finally went to work for Roush five years after I came back. So he started in 2003 
with Roush Fenway as my interior, my driver, my my guy, and they kind of moved him up quickly through the ranks, fabricating and building all kinds of stuff. But anyway, that's 2003 is when he came back. He did that for about, I think, about three, four years work for Roush Fenway, then came back to work for me full-time in my personal shop here in North Carolina and still works for me today. Oh, outstanding. That's way cool. You, so we got, go back, uh, Jeff Kent, we relive a few things here. I remember Greg Biffle and I, 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 Greg has now reminded me this. I was driving for Kenny Schrader mm -hmm. at that time, and we ended up running, racing together, not knowing each other at all. I'd heard his name. Uh, we raced the, you remember racing Disney World Speedway there, Greg? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, he's talking about Joe oh, Rudman yeah. being his his teammate at that time i was leading the race driving for kenny schrader coming down to five to go and <clears throat> rutman decided he needed a spot way worse than i did <laughs> and uh that side wall stopped me <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. wow yeah so uh i don't know how we got we've it. had we've had i mean i'm telling you i don't remember i do remember don't remember but i think we've had a few run-ins over the years but i had to race mike tooth and nail for the championship in 2000 in the trucks i remember that it was a i think it was a three-way battle if i remember correctly between kurt myself and you in 2000 yeah i was driving for jimmy smith then i was driving the two truck and i remember yep. uh late in the year uh dodge was going to get back into racing and they made contact with jimmy smith and i was driving and they wanted we were going to be the Dodge team. And I says, how did you guys decide on talking to Jim about this? He says, well, it was very simple. Greg Biffle was sitting in – he was number one in points. We knew we couldn't approach Roush because he's a Ford guy. <clears throat> and you're number two in the line. So that's how we got there. <laughs> very interesting. Yeah, well, now it's just – You got to go where the speed's at. Yeah, well, <laughs> So I, I didn't mean to jump off on onto that subject, but it was uh, you, you. The one thing I've learned about this show doing it is people that I've raced with and competed with, and uh, even though Greg and I challenged each other at times on the racetrack, he was nice enough to give me a, a ride home or two on his airplane from different places. Right. So that's a good so, guy. Yeah, good, good guy to know. Yeah. So we're going to 2003, Greg. You you've had great success in the truck series. You had great success in the Xfinity series. How does the cup program come along, or is that just natural progression at that point? Well, Mike, it was natural progression at that point. Of course, uh, my second year in the trucks, we planned to go Xfinity racing in the third year or fourth year. And then in my you know, first year Xfinity, we planned, I think, 2003. Roush was famous about having long contracts. And I think what I originally signed, it was a five-year contract so that they, they basically could lock you down as a driver, move you through their system. And so we kind of kept every few years renewing that, if you will, that five-year contract. And so those encompassed, obviously, if you have the results and the performance, you know, in, in so many years, you're going to move up to the, to the Xfinity or Cup or, or whatever. So... It was uh, that progression was already set in motion, just as long as we had the the success we did and could acquire the sponsors. So as you advanced along and you got the you know thinking back from day one when you got that truck opportunity and you had success there, you had success in the Xfinity series, and I I asked this in a very complimentary way because I try to get this opinion from everybody. At that point, when that Cup program is coming along, are you yourself? feeling really, really confident to the verge of being a little cocky on your talents? Uh, or are you just like, hey, I'm, I'm just Greg Biffle, and I'm just happier than hell to be here? You know, a little of both, Mike. <clears throat> and what, what a lot of people don't realize and take out of context is that a race car driver has to be confident. You've got to be confident in yourself that you have the ability to do it. And, and if you don't, then a lot of times you're not going to succeed. And there's a fine line between that cockiness or confidence and, and being arrogant. So there, there is a line between that. And 
I'll tell you what, it was so humbling. I, I was talking to someone the other day about, about, you know, coming up through the ranks and the, when I got into the truck series and I raced at Disney world speedway and then Phoenix, and then this other racetrack, I don't remember where we went for the third race. The first couple of races, I thought, boy, this was, you know, I'm having a lot of, you know, top five at Disney world. I qualified well in Phoenix, but that was short lived. But when I got two or three, four races in, I realized I don't, I don't stand a chance at competing with those top five guys or those top three guys, five guys, I don't know that I can beat them. They're so much better than I am. They're so much faster. How am I ever going to get there? And then with, with work and perseverance, you finally break through, you get there, you start winning races, and then you move to the Xfinity series. And there was 12 guys, 10 guys that I'm like, how am I ever going to beat these guys? Like I'm, we're running good. We're getting a top 10, but I got a long ways to go before I'm going to be able to compete for a win in this series. And then it was the same thing. And Mike, I'm not telling you anything you don't know and experience. Then you move to cup and there's 20 guys that, you know, you can compete and finish 25th or 20th or 18th. But to get to that, you know, um, even to the top 10, and then to the top five, you know, I, I, all along I was like, I don't know how in the world I'm ever going to be able to get, you know, to that to that level and compete with these guys. And, uh, you know, it's a humbling experience along the way, but you've got to have that confidence that, that you're going to be able to do it. So saying what you've just said, and I've never won a cup race, you've won 19 of them. Where was the point you think that, your confidence or what changed from the start of your cup career to when you want to race is there i mean yeah i like the way you're modest about hey i've started here i don't know if i can beat these guys and i keep working at it in the cup world now you're at the very top of the world you know that's the best motorsports in the country and you, you get it through your first races what what was the deal that got it to where you won races consistently i mean you won a lot of races Yes, it, it, it definitely has changed from when you and I were driving these cars, obviously, but think about back before the time of the smartphone and, you know, computers, you know, running these cars, it was the feel of the driver in, in the racetrack and the crew chief and the team picking the right setup, picking the right spring and shock combination, getting the car down on the racetrack. And so, uh, you know, a lot of times we ask, we stand back and say, is it the driver or is it the car? Because we've seen drivers go from mediocre cars to really, really good cars, and they perform at a top five level but never win. Then we see drivers go from a car and get in in a, in a top level car and they don't win at first, but then they start winning and they become fairly competitive and you wonder what the difference is. So when we started at Oh three, we were way off on the setup. I remember it cost me winning rookie of the year, but we missed the race in Las Vegas. We failed to qualify because the nose of the car was five inches or four and a half inches in the air. And, and you just, we just, you just can't drive it. Mike, you know what I'm talking about. If your car doesn't have the arrow, it's not down in the front. It's not down on the track. You stand no chance. It doesn't matter if it's Jeff Gordon, myself, Jimmy Johnson, you know, you could pick any driver in the world. He's not going to be able to drive that. And so it was a combination of, you know, understanding the race car and getting the attitude right. And once I got that feel, once I got the feel in 04, I won two races. 2005, we got the left front coil bind. We've got the splitter sealed off in the left front corner. We've got the right rear back, a hundred thousands of axle steer. Once I got that feel of what I wanted, we were at, at, you know, you could be arrogant and say we were unbeatable at those mile and a half and those 
you know, mile type of racetracks, Dover. We, we just became, you know, we won more races than anybody in the, in the, in that season. We won six races. It's just that feel. We got the car the way we wanted it. And we, we got that set up, right. We got the arrow as good as we could get it. And, and I think that was the, that was the deal. And, and over time, we failed to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. We we didn't we didn't uh, adapt to the simulation well. We didn't keep up on the aero platform, and and other guys, you know, other teams started beating us, and and it was just kind of that slow slide down the, you know, down the um, chain. Okay. Well, you know, I think Jeff Kent, that's a great place to take a break. It really is. Yeah. And then we're going to come back and talk about everything from there on. We're cup racing. We're having tremendous success. I'd like to find out what 2022 has in store for Greg Bethel. We'll find out. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the SpeedSport <clears throat> Podcast Network, presented by Crosley and NASCAR Digital Media. Welcome back to the Crosley Speed Sports Studios. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. Today's guest, Greg Biffle, joins us. Greg, once again, here's Mike. Well, Greg, you know, we were recapping uh, the cup racing. You were the man. You and your team were, were the guys. You were the guys that beat when you pulled in the racetrack. And you said there was just a little bit of a slow decline over the years in performance and things like that. So bring us up to that and bring us kind of towards the end of your career at that point in, in NASCAR racing. So, you know, we, we uh, you know, it got more, way more competitive and we fell behind, I feel, and some of that simulation and arrow and it just, you know, we struggled as a team. It was, it was really tough. I saw, uh, you know, I saw Carl Edwards. Um, I think I believe I saw Matt Kenseth go first to, to Gibbs and then had success over there. Um, you know, Matt's used to winning races and, and, you know, all the time. And then Carl goes to Gibbs and almost wins a championship. And I felt like I just, you know, I felt loyal to Jack, gave me my first opportunity. I wanted to stay there. I felt loyal to the sponsor, to 3M, and I think I just stayed too long. I needed to move on and, and try other things, but um, I, I got to that point where I just said, look, I, this, I don't see light at the end of the tunnel, and I always told myself, if I feel like I can't win races, whether it's me physically or the car I'm driving, I'm not going to stay in a sport just to drive around in a circle. That's I'm a winning guy. I want to win. I want to be competitive. And when I feel like I can't do that anymore, I don't have the opportunity in front of me that, you know, I'm going to step away. And it took a few years for me to, for that to sink in and for me to really think about that. But I went to them and tried to get released in a, my last year, my contract, well, I had one more year so that I could go try and find another opportunity. Childress had a seat coming open. There was a few other opportunities. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to negotiate my way out. And so I finished off the 16 season. And then, of course, when that season was over, then I got released for the 17 season. But there wasn't anything available, really, that was, was what I considered I could go get in and win right right then and so i decided i'll take a year off one year turned into two or three i came back and ran a truck race for kyle one off and that obviously went very well i won in texas but you know what I, as i as i stepped away i got to spend time with my family my daughter i got to do things i really really wanted to do you know i love off-roading and i love the sand i love to fish and i love boating and yachting so some of those things started taking over, kind of consuming my life. And I'm like, you know what? I, I really don't want to go back full, full time unless it's a top level opportunity. And with my age, I'm like, look, I understand there's, there's a lot of other better candidates that, that I may get that call, but there's a lot of great candidates that, that could fill that position. A lot of 19 so, year olds out there that want, that want yeah. your job, you know? <clears throat> Yeah. That's right. And and so that's where I go. That's where I'm at today. You know, and I still say the same thing. I feel like I could get in a top level car five there. You know, there's probably what, however many there are, 
uh, I feel like I can compete at, at the, the highest level. And, you know, I, I know I realize that's probably not going to happen, but, you know, that, that opportunity always um, – and I've had lots of people call me and ask me to drive. And, and again, I just don't want to be out there to be, to be out there. I love it. I miss it. It's like my family. Um, but I think it's time, you know, unless it's that, you know, wonderful opportunity that we all wish for, I think I'm just going to, you know, stay semi-retired. Well, there you go. Well, you proved to everybody you can come back and win. I'm, I'm, I was way impressed for, uh, your run in the truck with Kyle Bush at Texas, you know, you come out, basically, if you want to use the word, come out of retirement. Yeah. And he wins the race. Right. You know, it's like, okay, there's there's hope for me yet. I still got <laughs> <laughs> Craig's a little younger than you, Mike. Oh, what? Why did you have to throw that in there? Uh, yeah, well, if they say it doesn't take any more to dream big as it does to dream small. so uh, That's right. But let's catch up with Greg Biffle today. We, we Thanks for taking the time telling us how your, your career started and where you're at. But... I hear your name still brought up in a lot of things today. I mean, and stop me anywhere that I'm saying anything wrong. You, you had or have airplanes. You had some re, uh, real estate business going on. I'm out in Arizona last week, and I hear Greg Biffle. He's the man out here to glamour sand dunes. Got all sorts of stuff. Tell us a little bit about what your what your life consists of today. Well, Mike, I did finally sell the rest of my aircraft, so I, I love. And I remember talking to you one day uh, at the racetrack, and this popped into my head about small flying, small planes. So I knew you had your pilot's license at one point, also. But I, I had too many toys. I call them toys, okay? Too many things that to, to manage. And I did have a King Air that I flew on a, um, you know, I, I didn't fly on it myself, but we, I used it as a business, um, and and chartered it out. But I've, I'm out of that. I do have a uh, my love for the sand dunes starts way back. We're growing up in motorcycles and four wheelers, quads. When I won my championship in the Xfinity series, I bought myself a present. I bought myself a sand car. And for those people that don't know what that is, it's full size, you know, four seat V8 engine, you know, um, full blown sand car. And, and I love the desert. I was going every year, two or three times a year. And uh, so as that, as that love for the sand and off-roading progressed, you know, it's on the other end of the world, and it's out in the middle of nowhere. So I ended up acquiring a small piece of property and building a building out there that I could keep all my off-road cars in. So now I'm into the UTVs or the Razors or side-by-sides and not so much the sand cars anymore but the razors are so much more fun and practical because all my friends have them they're a little more economical obviously and so i love to fabricate i grew up you know welding and fabricating and an automotive background so in my shop here in mooresville we do some work on side by sides and i came up with an engine swap package for them to put a different powertrain in them so I'm in dabbling and building and, and doing all kinds of miscellaneous uh, miscellaneous things and, and kind of enjoy a number of things. So that's basically what I'm doing now since I've retired is is uh, I've got a small, a lot of people don't know, but I got a small river rock mine in Virginia. And that's a whole nother story in itself how I got into that business. But Tell us I what a river rock a mine of- is. Yeah, it's in Speed, just outside of Speedwell, uh, or just outside of Whitfield, Virginia, in, in Speedwell. So we supply a lot of the landscape yards around the greater Charlotte, Mooresville, Concord area with landscaping stone. Hmm. And my brother ran that business up until I retired, and I sort of went back, took it over full time. So I work up there a couple of days a week. I work in my shop here on our off-road stuff and, and whatever, and... That's basically, uh, that's in a nutshell, that's what I'm doing now. So this is glamorous time of the season. I was planning on going um, for, this is a big weekend. Martin Luther King weekend is a big weekend. And I got COVID, so I had to stay home and, you know, quarantine. So that was no fun. But, uh, 
looking forward to getting back on the road. Tell me about that glamour. Give me a quick scenario on that. I heard I, I never heard of it till like a, a month ago. Now it's pretty famous, I guess, at this time of the year or whatever. A lot of people go out there. It is, Mike. You got you have to if you're a YouTube guy or like to watch videos, you know, start Googling and look at it. I will tell you, from the time I it is from driving a race car and getting that rush and the adrenaline, I know you drive still race dirt cars or do whatever. It is exactly the same is is going to Glamis is it is going to the racetrack on Friday night or Saturday night. The only problem is, or not a problem, the only thing different is, there's no green flag and checkered flag. You can ride as long as you want or as short as you want. Stop, hang out, have fun, put more fuel in it, go again. And hopefully, most of the time, knock on wood, I've had a few incidences, but you don't crash them and have to rebuild them. So there's nothing uh, to hit. <laughs> well, well there's, we were... there's, a, there's a lot of stuff to ride off. Now you can get in trouble in a hurry. Don't let me, uh, <laughs> don't get me wrong, but it is as close to driving a race car is I, anything I've done, anything I've done. That's not on a closed course. Like we could go to um, GoPro and ride go-karts for the day, or we could go somewhere else. But Glamis is the, it's the largest sand dune area in North America. And it is by far the most fun out of anything I've driven, you know, on-road, off-road, besides, you know, racing NASCAR. Well, let me ask you this, all right? So you're cruising along. You go up over the top of one of those dunes, maybe catch a little air, and there's somebody coming the other way. Does that ever happen? That really, do that really doesn't happen. And, and here's why. You would think that's what happens. Most of the injuries or accidents are single car except for they have like these bigger hangout areas where like the sandbar on the lake, if you will. So there's a hill called Oldsmobile. Well, people will go out there. There'll be 10,000 people there in this area and people are riding up and down this hill and a few people get some liquid courage or <laughs> get, you know, showing off to their buddies. And then some cars can actually have a make contact or something. Um, you know, especially at night, it's harder to see at night with the lights, what, maybe what direction a guy might be going. But typically these cars, all the cars and UTVs, motorcycles and four wheelers have flags on them. Right. And typically you see somebody from a dune or two over, you'll see another group of, of cars and you typically don't cross a dune straight over it. You transition the dune from kind of one angle to the other angle, one bowl to another bowl. And um, that, that it typically, you don't see accidents or people hitting each other in those, uh, you know, those types of, yeah. gotcha. that type well, of makes sense. I knew there had to be some rules. Yeah. <laughs> well, Greg, it sounds like a great time. Uh, thanks for bringing us up to speed on, on that. Uh, uh, Jeff and I have, uh, decided before we talk to you we will officially throw our name in the hat if you decide to go back out there and don't have anybody to go with you right yeah i'm telling you we're all guys, in i've got i've got cars there and it's uh we're ready to go anytime you have to come out and try it and i mean people come out love it i mean people really really love it so um anytime I, I think jeffy just said we're invited uh, I, I think we just got invited okay yeah. well right. i'm gonna That's stay right. in touch with Chris, but uh <laughs> Greg Biffle has been so much fun. As, as we wind you down here, we'll recap it. You started out in Oregon, you, you just short track racing, street stock racing, kept getting better and better, got the opportunity to go truck racing, Xfinity racing, cup racing, and you wanted all those levels. You were a businessman before, and it sounds like in your uh, leisure time now, you're still a businessman. So congratulations. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I, I really enjoy it. And, uh, you know, we look back on our career, Mike, and say, I wish I had done this or that different. We could we could do that all day long, but I really wouldn't change anything. I, I really enjoyed doing everything I've done. And I wanted to win that cup title, and I was so close, but those will just be stories. Yeah, well, man, you're a champion. I, you can always look yourself in the mirror every morning and realize how great you were and still are today. So thank you very much for bringing your story to all of our fans and all your fans, and uh, look forward to uh, hanging out someday together. 
Absolutely. In Glamis. In in Glamis. Okay, great. Listen, you are committed to take Jeff Kent and I to Glamis. We'll pay our way there, but we're borrowing everything once we get there. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's more than fine. I've got all the gear. All right. Sounds great. Once again, Greg Biffle, thank you. You've been listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network presented by Crosley and NASCAR Digital Media. We'll see you next week.